what we're discussing in this debate is how we can we tweak the welfare system to give more benefits to the poor and we need a good safety net but that, that, that that's not going to help someone sustainably climb the income ladder and escape poverty it's just a band-aid solution and we need to discuss the bigger structural issues how trade can drive more mobility how entrepreneurship drives more mobility how uh, uh, yeah. incentives in the price system drive entrepreneurship innovation market uh, creating innovations that can drive more job creation and that's one of the key issues about mobility that we haven't discussed a lot either in Latin America or in developed countries yeah. as well. presidential candidate Javier Millet has received global attention, not only for his eccentric style, but also his libertarian views. Millet has now reached the final two in the Argentinian presidential race, with promises to slash government spending and even potentially shut down the central bank. This potential political earthquake comes as many Latin American countries continue to struggle under the force of authoritarian, interventionist or even socialist governments. Welcome back to the IA podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh, and I'm the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalising policy question. Today's question, can Latin America overcome socialism? To discuss, I'm excited to be joined by not one, but two guests today. Uh, Gonzalo Schwartz, who is the President and CEO of the Archbridge Institute, which focuses on social mobility and human development. And I'm also joined by Dr. Axel Kaiser, who's a Chilean writer, lawyer, and political scientist. He's the co-founder and president of the think tank Foundation for Progress in Santiago. And he's also the author of The Street Economist, which we'll be talking a little bit about today as well. So I just want to start, before we get into some of the more um, specific machinations in, in Latin politics today, a kind of broader thought about the, the state of, of, of Latin America it seems like it's a region with so much opportunity. It's often talked about as time and time again as the, the next big economic um, growth area in the world, but often seems to at the same time struggle under these um, quite difficult political and, and economic situation. Because um, I don't want to come to you first and think about your work, maybe about social mobility and, and how that relates to, to Latin America. Yes, thank you, Matthew. Yes, I think it's social mobility is a key issue. There's a lot of a lot of stagnation across different countries across the across the region, and what people many times relate the lack of social mobility is because there's a lot of inequality. Now, from personally, I think that that's a misleading uh, correlation. It's just there are some barriers that I think affect both in income inequality and mobility as well. And the history of Latin America has been one where we've had very weak rule of law and institutions, and that has driven a lot of some of these outcomes. So corruption breeds uh, a lot of the income inequality, breeds some of that stagnation, crony capitalism as well. And I think that comes from over-regulation, from overburdensome um, barriers to entrepreneurship, to individual and economic freedom. And that I think has been historically what has happened throughout the region and has made so the pendulum oscillate from one side to the other. And people, in the case as you mentioned at the beginning of Argentina, that's under 13% monthly inflation. Or Venezuela has been a basket case uh, for a while because of all these restrictions, uh, uh, all these barriers uh, to entrepreneurship, to uh, private initiative. And I think that a lot of that stagnates mobility. A lot of that uh, creates a lot of despair in people that they can't project themselves into the future. They can't think about their lives and how they're going to climb up if they have so many barriers in their way. And that's, as I said, 
is coming from decades and decades of many different issues around corruption barriers that I think Axel can speak a little bit more about. So actually, you've, you've done a lot of work on, on various Latin American countries thinking about their, their histories and, and um, economies. It seems Argentina is a particularly shocking case in some ways that a century ago it was probably one of the world's richest countries. Today, as um, Gonzalo's already said, it, it's facing this inflation crisis and, and has um, stagnated, if not relatively declined, for a very long period of time. Yes. So, you know, interesting because Hayek was asked uh, the same question when he was in Latin America in, uh, I think it was in the late 70s. And why is Latin America um, such a failure when you compare it to the United States, Canada, North America, basically? And he said, and I think this is a fundamental reason why it's so hard to uh, achieve prosperity in, in our region. He said that we had imported the French tradition of liberalism, which is um, a rationalistic tradition which claims that government and uh, centrally planned uh, agent can solve all our problems. Why, whereas the Americans had imported the Anglo-Saxon tradition of freedom and therefore you had a more um, market-friendly or individual liberty-friendly um, social order. And I think that's one of the main reasons I'm, I'm, uh, that explains everything that Gonzalo was just describing. Uh, I actually wrote a paper about this some years ago, but there is an extra or another element. Our culture is mostly a Catholic culture. And within this uh, Catholic uh, framework, the Jesuits had a huge impact uh, in, in everything in Latin America, on, on all institutions and the way we think, basically. And uh, uh, Jesuit uh, worldview is basically completely uh, opposed to individual freedom and opposed to uh, capitalism and free markets. Why? Because in their view, you need to have a um, community that uh, where the members are part of a whole. Um, and if you allow individual freedom, then the corpus of Christ, which is understood as this community, right, uh, becomes corrupted. Uh, uh, you are not experiencing uh, the same that all of the members are experiencing. And so you, you become rich and you don't care about the rest and there is no solidarity. And this worldview has been extremely uh, influential in the history of Latin America and politics in, in, in law and in, in economics and everything. And you see it in Pope Francis. Pope Francis is a Jesuit, he's Argentinian, and he claims that the problems uh, of Latin America are caused by economic liberalism. And he says that, well, uh, capitalism is, um, you know, a poor system, that it has to be replaced, and it is a pernist. And it reflects, I think, his opinions reflect uh, largely what cultural Latin America is all about. And so it's not like he's a pope or, a, you know, an Argentinian guy who thinks that, but it's also uh, what, uh, what large sectors of Latin America, even conservatives, think about the market. And, and this is the reason why I think we are uh, doomed to fail. Well, that's a, that's a very pessimistic premise. I mean, is it, is it Gonzalo, do you have much, I suppose, um, hope in terms of overcoming some of those or, or, or rebuilding some of those institutional failures or institutional premises when it comes to uh, that collectivist way of thinking? I mean, it doesn't, it, it seems like there are potentially some, at least some success stories in Latin America. Maybe Chile, for example, has been a, had recent mm -hmm. issues, but um, has been at least 
in, in recent decades, mm -hmm. a relatively more prosperous yeah. um, South American country. Yeah, and there were some great reforms there, but that's where I think the, the, the issue of social mobility kicks in, if we're better off than our past generations, if we're better off as, we, as we're growing. And that's where I think there were a lot of um, reforms that went against the better reforms at the beginning of, um, or beginning or late 70s and 80s and 90s. And, and since the 2006 onwards, sent to be crept in reforms and barriers that were, that were going back uh, in terms of education, taxes, entrepreneurship, even the education system sometimes. And that sort of created a stagnation of mobility. And the issue is that when you're used to generation after generation, like a habit in Chile, to having more mobility, and, and that stagnates, people are starting to develop more of a zero-sum mindset. That's what we've had a lot in a, a lot of times in, in the history of Latin America. And because there haven't been improvements in the standard of living for a while, that sort of breeds more questions around the system and we need someone different, so the left comes in again. And now we've seen that they haven't been able to find any answers as well. So then maybe the pendulum swings back in Chile to the right. In Argentina, we see all the uh, angst about uh, how the economy is doing. Now we, Belay is doing better or the center right has been doing better because there has been so much economic suffering. So, uh, and there are some good examples in Uruguay, my, my native country, but that's been very slow. Uruguay, is to, it's very slow in doing reforms, but there's better rule of law than other countries. So there are some highlights. I think in some ways, um, as more people realize that it's not a matter of, of left and right, it's about having good economics and having good uh, reforms that are liberalizing the economy, going against what Pope Francis, I think, has been saying or other leaders have been saying in the region. But historically, there has been a lot of confusion around markets and crony and crony capitalism. People have attributed a lot of failures of, of uh, reforms or, or markets to what is in essence crony capitalism. And it started with adopting that system that, that, um, that Axel mentioned and a system in which people who were closer to the monarchy in the past or closer to, to, the, to power had special privileges. But that's more cronism, that, those are not markets. But that sort of bred a culture and underappreciation of entrepreneurism in society, because in the past there was a lot of chronic capitalism that, uh, and that is a lot of distrust of like, oh, if you have, if you make it in Latin America, oh, it's because you did something. Either you cheated the system, you're close to power. And I think slowly but surely there's a lot of more private initiative. There's, there's a great human capital. When Latin Americans go to, to Europe, go to the United States, they succeed because there's good human capital. And with the right institutions in place, people can prosper. But in Latin America, those are the same issues over and over again. There's no right institutions. There's still a lot of corruption, chronic capitalism because of bigger bureaucracies and barriers. Um, mm. So, but there is, I think, some hope that people are seeing that it's just about, we need to get yeah. the economics oh. right yeah. and that it will, be, it will happen. I, my, my, I have to say, my heart does sink when you say, talk about a period of, of stagnation leading to a zero-sum thinking, leading yeah. to poor policymaking. I, I think you could almost argue that's, that's been the experience in the UK for the last yeah, for uh, sure, five, yeah. ten years. It, it seems like you can get stuck on this sense in which the existing system isn't delivering very well, and mm -hmm. but the, the inability to correctly identify what the problem is. Do you, Axel, do you want to, uh, you really lit up, yeah. of course, as, a, as someone who's Chilean about that particular side of it, and run us through what's been the experience, because you've been quite involved with um, uh, some of the policy responses to the, the protests and the change in government. And, and, and I was the main face of the resistance <laughs> in, in the, on the public debate in Chile. 
against the reforms that um, Michelle Bachelet introduced uh, in her second term. So, do you, yeah, want to see what what were those reforms? What, what well, was basically, the basically a colossal increase in corporate tax, like uh, with no president in the country's history. Uh, it destroyed investment, uh, also um, dramatically damaging the, the voucher system that we had in education, public education, uh, labor loss that made the labor market more rigid and, and you know, um, increased the cost of hiring people and firing people and so on. So when she came to power in 2014, she promised to uh, get rid of neoliberalism. This is what, what, I'm, what, what I'm trying to explain. Uh, Latin American culture is not compatible with the ideals of the modern world. Not compatible with the ideals of the modern world, which is basically the idea of individualism. When you take a look at the Atlas ranking of economic mentality, um, Chile is one of the lowest in the world pro-capitalism. Uh, and so I, I actually predicted this was going to happen. I wrote books and uh, I, I became to be known like a sort of Nostradamus because I predicted all of this. And it's, if people want to understand how ideology, because in the end it's not the economic policies. It's the ideology that drives the economic policy. And how that destroyed Chile, you can, because Chile has been destroyed already, this is the f a fact. For 10 years we have grown only 0.6% per capita. This is, it, it's game over for Chile. And uh, I wrote a paper that was published by Cato Journal called The Fall of Chile. And I explain how the uh, mentality of redistributionism, egalitarianism, led to economic reforms that in the end destroyed the foundations of prosperity. But because the left controlled the narrative in the country, then instead of blaming the same wrong ideas and policies, people doubled down on that. And then more reforms came. And then you had this uh, vicious circle in which we destroyed the country. Now there is some reaction, but I don't think we are going to recover it for many, many years or maybe decades. Uh, and, and that's why I'm so skeptical, because when you have countries that uh, m make the necessary reforms to prosper in Latin America, it can work for one, two decades, and then they destroy them again. It's what mm. happened with us in 1970-75, when the Fraser Institute started publishing the Economic Freedom Index, Venezuela was number 13 in the world. 13! Chile, until recently, was number 13. We are now number 30. And if you, if you take a look at the evolution of Venezuela, it was not like they were number 13 and then Chavez came and destroyed everything. But they were falling, falling, falling. And when Chavez came to power, it was like 80-something already. And then Chavez ended up destroying everything in Maduro. And so that is the challenge that we face. We have to change structurally our mentality, our culture, so that people embrace the ideas of the free market and, uh, and, and individual liberty, human flourishing. Uh, otherwise, we can't have good reforms, but then another government will come, will destroy them, and then we will go back to, to the same place. Yeah, I mean, th this is almost a classic idea that, that culture is upstream of, of economics. So you, and, mm -hmm. and this is almost the purpose of a think tank, which is to say yeah. it's slightly less day-to-day you know, -day policymaking is very important, but also very even more important is the, the general understanding of, of economic issues um, that lead to that. I suppose on a more positive or optimistic note, um, potentially is, is the rise of Meili in Argentina. Um, I think that there'll be a bit of a temptation in uh, some of the, the English language press to basically paint him as some kind of populist madman 
um, maybe like a trumpite or something along those lines. I'm wondering where does uh, where where is he placed politically um, compared to some of those other figures in in Latin America or Western politics, um, and what are the, what is the potential there? Well, I'm a personal friend of Javier Millet. I know I've known him for for a long time. Actually, it's funny because when he started be, to become famous, people were saying that. Javier Millet was the Axel Kaiser of Argentina, <laughs> and now they are all asking me if I'm the Javier Millet of Chile. So uh, uh, he presented actually my book, The Street Economist in Argentina. It became very influential in the um, free market movement there. And first of all, he has achieved something that is heroic, which is to change in a country like Argentina with the Peronist culture, which is statism and collectivism like no other country in the world probably. Structurally, he changed public opinion. It means that the new generations that follow him are not going to be Peronist. They, they are going to be pro-market, libertarians, classical liberals. And, and, and that changed forever, in my opinion. And that had never happened before in the history of Argentina or probably in the history of Latin America. So he achieved something extraordinary. Some of us helped, but he's the main, the main figure there. Now, compared to Bolsonaro, Trump, he's, he's different. He is basically someone who truly believes in, in the institutions. He would never uh, mess with the institutions. He is a Democrat. Um, he, he believes in, liber in, in, in liberal democracy or classical liberal democracy. And he uh, is someone who has shown also a pragmatism now that he didn't win in the first round. He has come together with the former rivals from Juntos por el Cambio, which was the Patricia Woolrich, the other center-right uh, wing candidate that was running, and he has uh, said that I'm I'm starting from a clean slate, so let's let's come all together. And this is something that most people I I used to talk with uh, were saying, no, he's never going to do that because he's insane. He's not insane. I know him. He's extremely smart and pragmatic, and 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 also if he has if he has to be, but he's also principle uh, driven. He's not going to just be a president that doesn't do anything and like Macri and just try to you know, get through the four years. He actually can't afford to do that because they are on the verge of hyperinflation now in Argentina. So uh, I think people are misjudging him and, and there is a, a reaction from the media against him because he is going to be, if he wins, the first libertarian candidate ever to win a presidential election in modern times in the Western world. And, and so journalists don't, don't really like pro-capitalist, um, hardcore pro-capitalist. Compared to him, Ronald Reagan is like Karl Marx. Yeah? So, <laughs> so it's really impressive that he has this chance of winning. And, and I would say that he um, will, will have a, a, good, a good right as a person if he wins. Do you, do you think there's a, a risk potentially that of, of basically trying to go too far too quickly and it, it being quite chaotic. I mean, in terms of cutting, even philosophically, you know, cutting back a, a substantial amount of government spending is something um, a lot of classical liberals have, have talked about and, and advocated for. Um, is it something that he'll, I suppose, be able to achieve politically? Um, and and is there like, a, I suppose, a, a lot of thought about, and this is where I think there's a lot of struggle, is how to get to from A to B, like how to, what kind of reforms you'll need to do to get to the end point rather um, of, I suppose, a smaller government and um, more entrepreneurship and social mm -hmm. mobility. Yeah, and well, one of the things that he won't be, I mean, he can do a, um, some executive orders or functions, but he won't, he doesn't have a majority in Congress too much to do a lot of big things. 
he can do some things himself. I think, as Axel mentioned, he, he'll moderate himself now with trying to build a bigger coalition. But at the end of the day, uh, Argentina needs needs that change, regardless if, it's, if it was him, if it's someone else. And I think he's the one that has the better chance of doing it. If Patricia Bullrich would have won, I mean, I'm not an expert uh, on, on her program or others, but it didn't, it, was, it didn't give me a sense that she would be making those changes and that her party uh, that was in power before the current Peronist government was able to do anything. So it's, it's kind of compli- it's very complicated. There was a Nobel laureate in economics, uh, Simon Kuznets, that said that there's four types of countries in the world, developed, underdeveloped, Argentina, and Japan. Because Argentina <laughs> is always such a weird yeah. case that it has, as you said. They, they have a lot of natural resources, human capital, a lot, and there's al- they're always struggling. And what, what uh, I think brought me to thinking about that quote again this week was, even though he did well in Patricia Bullrich with both of their... Uh, votes that they could win, the center-right could win, but there were still 35% who voted for Massa, who is the current minister of economics, who is cre- a big part to blame for the 13% monthly inflation. So I, it's it's a complicated case but uh, for Argentina, but he would be the one that I think would be, maybe he doesn't go all the way in doing all the reforms that he said. He is uh, trying to sort of cater to the base in this first round, and he may be moderating himself, but Argentina needs those changes. It's been too many years, too many uh, missed opportunities, and they need to do it. And I think that he's just has more of that maybe grit, more of the perseverance to see a lot of this stuff happen. I think he will be slower than what he's saying, and he doesn't have the majority in Congress. So, he, on, on one of the, his key points, I believe, is dollarization, which seems mm. like uh, for all the critiques of, of the Federal Reserve, it's not allowing inflation to get quite out, as control, out of control compared to Argentina. Is that something that is, uh, I suppose, a, a viable policy um, in, in practice in Argentina? Is that likely to happen? So Argentina has over $200 billion in cash under the mattress. Argentinian, the Argentinian economy is already dollarized. I mean, everyone who, who can afford to buy dollars has dollars. You buy properties, you buy it in dollars in cash. You, you bring the whole it's package like of Venezuela the, as well, isn't it? Like a, yeah, a, but an, it's, an underground it's, it's happening the same, the same, yeah. pro, the same mm-hmm. thing because hyperinflation completely destroyed the Bolivar in Venezuela, and in Argentina it's on the verge of hyperinflation. And every time, everyone thinks in terms of dollars. When you go and you buy something at the store, even the guy who has an average salary is thinking, how, ma- how many dollars are this? I mean, how much money is this in dollars? Because because inflation is 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 so dramatic that you don't have prices, more or less, stable prices anymore. Mm. And so this is the first, the first thing. So you, you could just do it like, like El Salvador did it with, um, with uh, saying the dollar is from now on legal tender. And that would change a lot because dollar will start circulating and you will have a, an organic process of, of, of replacement uh, of the currency. But then you have the problem of the debt of the central bank and the public debt. And uh, the big uh, question is how you get the, the, the dollars you need in order to, uh, to pay off these debts mm. and, and to dollarize uh, bank deposits and, and, and that. And that's the, that's the main, main challenge. But there are some, some ideas that, that they already have. And there are, I, th- I know, um, having conversations with other important institutions uh, in the US and other, and other parts of the world, to, to get this um, done. And uh, if they have the political support of their partners from Juntos por el Cambio, 
that would uh, make a big difference. And also if there is political support from Congress, which because I think they will need um, laws in order mm -hmm. to make all of this happen. But, you know, they don't have a choice. It's not like, oh, no, we are going to stay with the peso. Dollarization, in my view, is going to come to Argentina in a disorderly, disordered way or, uh, you know, uh, like in an institutionalized uh, way uh, because people don't want the peso anymore. When I went mm -hmm. to Argentina, so that your viewers know, <laughs> a sense of, have a sense of the proportion of the problem, uh, 2015-16, it was like... 15 peso per dollar now is over a thousand pesos per dollar this wow. is this is this is spiraling out of control and and it's it's really going to be mm. much worse in, in a year from now so I don't think they have a lot of time mm. I think they will have three four months in order to uh, announce uh, because you in Argentina you are voted into office in order to control inflation that was Menem for instance and and and, and, and many cases before him if they don't do it, if they don't start from day one mm -hmm. trying to solve the problem with aggressive uh, reforms, then they will be uh, they will lose their honeymoon political capital. Yeah. So just um, pulling back to these kind of broader issues again, Axel, I wanted to, if you could give us a bit of an intro to your book, The Street Economist. Um, talk talk us through um, how far it's reached already and then I'm kind of interested in some of the lessons from it as well. Yes, uh, thank you. So uh, I wrote this book. It's a very basic introduction to economics. Um, it was published first in Chile and we sold over 40,000 copies in a year. It was number one uh, over a year, for over a year and it's still being sold in many um, you know, bookstores and countries. Seven languages already. Yeah. Mm. And the content is basically, I try to explain price theory, capital theory, trade, free trade theory, uh, entrepreneurship, and things like that in a few pages with no math, no graphs, no footnotes, in a very simple language. And I think that has been the key to, to the success, unprecedented, of the book. So if, if you want a, a glowing endorsement, Didier McCloskey, who's also um, uh, done an interview in this room, said, if you read only one book on economics, it should be Alex Kaiser's it will change your mind and maybe your life, certainly your politics. So it's it, it, um, headline is 15 lessons. I don't know if we quite can get through all 15, although I would obviously encourage people to read it. But in what you think some of the, the key lessons are, what, what, what would you say that maybe top two or three lessons if you had to pick? Well, I, I started with a, with a very basic lesson that we have forgotten in the West, all over the West, which is that in order to make, to live, you have to work, you have to earn something. And that there are two ways of, of, uh, of, of living. You work from your own work or you, or, or you live out of the work of others. And so you expect the government to take away from others to give it to you. So I start with that very simple lesson and then I, 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 I go uh, down and I explain, for instance, what prices are. That prices enable to uh, transmit information in a market, a market economy. I use very simple examples, right? And so that people can understand this is Hayekian insight into price theory. Uh, and uh, that you shouldn't fix prices, you shouldn't mess with prices because you alter the signals that allow to structure the whole economy and then you end up harming the poor people and, and people with no opportunities even more. Uh, then I explain, for instance, why free trade is so important. And I also use very simple examples, like how you can profit from free trade by exchanging what you produce as a, let's say, Latin American country with the technology that, um, that Britain 
um, is capable of producing. So in the end, what we do with free trade is to, um, as Chile or Argentina or whatever, or any other country, is to profit from the brain power that you can find in, 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 in London, for instance. Like uh, you have great engineers, they invent things, and we can import these things it's as if they were living in our own country, mm. only we produce wine or wheat or whatever, we send it here, and, and then that's, that's the way that we all prosper. And now we are going back to protectionist policies, not mm. only in Latin America, which is typical for us, but also you are seeing in the, on, at the level of European Union, the United States, uh, I understand that there is a Cold War 2.0 context here with China and, mm. and that, that we shouldn't forget how important free trade is for, for our economies. And things like uh, capital. What is capital? We tend to demonize capital. Mm. And I explain that capital is savings and ingenuity, uh, applied ingenuity basically. Mm. That the, uh, if you have a computer or you have a machine, whatever, that's capital. Well, in order to develop this machine that allows you to to um, increase you know, your crops production or something like that. You uh, need savings that will pay for, your, um, for the time you need to be alive you know, in order to develop this machine. And in the end, you will increase production and therefore you will benefit, benefit everyone else because then the price of bread will dramatically um, you know, um, sink and, and in, in the end, the consumers and the real wages of everyone are, is going up. And these things uh, I explain in a very, very simple language. And I think that's the key of the success of the book. And it's also the pirate edition is being sold on many, many, many streets in Latin America, uh, which is the best, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> way of knowing that you have really mm-hmm. um, achieved a, mm-hmm. a, 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 a book that is having an effect, a mainstream. Going, uh, going viral, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I wonder what your reflections are on, on the book and, and any final thoughts about this this relationship with um, social mobility, which is which is really uh, you've done some great research on recently as well. Yeah, no, I think a lot of the lessons that Axel discusses uh, are key, uh, and I think that the social mobility discussion has focused too much on income inequality, which doesn't tell you much about anything that's going on. The, it's just uh, it's just a gap between the rich and the poor. It doesn't tell you what's creating that gap. And I think a lot of the lessons that Axel talks about in the book highlight how the market uh, system works, the price system works, and we need to have a lot of more classical liberal ideas. We need to uh, study more how entrepreneurship relates to social mobility. As Axel uh, mentioned, one of the that we forgot in the Western countries that we need to work. We need to work in order to generate income. And the main way to climb the income ladder, the main way that we have our source of income is through a job. But now what we're discussing in this debate is how we can we tweak the welfare system to give more benefits to the poor and we need a good safety net. But that, that, that's not going to help someone sustainably climb the income ladder and escape poverty. It's just a band-aid solution. And we need to discuss the bigger structural issues, how trade can drive more mobility, how entrepreneurship drives more mobility, how uh, uh, yeah. incentives in the price system drive entrepreneurship, innovation, market uh, creating innovations that can drive more job creation. And that's one of the key issues about mobility that we haven't discussed a lot, either in Latin America or in developed countries yeah. as well. In, and I, I, I think yeah. I looked at your 
research when I was preparing for this podcast about just the, the correlation between mm-hmm. economic freedom and people being able to be entrepreneurial and social mobility, which is which I, I think is, is really essential here, which is you, you don't get people moving between different classes mm-hmm. if you limit their capacity to start up a business or earn income or work work their way up if you if you just do it through a redistributive high tax system. You know, everyone's gonna be perhaps a little bit more equal, but but equally poor with relatively little mobility to move between those income levels. Yeah, exactly. And if you put more barriers to business and you reduce that amount of job creation, there's gonna be less paths to flourishing, less paths to for for more social mobility. And we think about it uh, when we put taxes on a company, we think that's gonna help. They were distributed, but then you're creating uh, you're creating more barriers for people to create new jobs. And at the end of the day, that benefits sometimes the upper class more. So it creates inequalities because they can pay those taxes. They can, they can afford to sustain more regulations and barriers because mm. that sort of drives out competition. And if we don't have competition, we'll, we'll generate more barriers to mobility and we'll generate even more inequality. So all those things are related. So at the end of the day, we need more economic freedom yeah. to drive mm-hmm. more mobility and even less inequality. Yeah, I mean, perhaps even the, I think probably the biggest example in the UK, which you know we go back to time and time again, which is something like housing, where mm-hmm. we've regulated it to such an extent mm-hmm. yeah. and that it's so expensive to live your day-to-day life um, that you, you, in a sense, prevent people from being able to move and live where they could be most productive and they could yeah. get the best job. So you're locking people out of effectively out of cities or making mm-hmm. them pay most of any additional income they get by living in a city. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, you have less social mobility. It's not, that kind of social mobility isn't really talked about, like the impact of housing on social mobility, yes. but it's, yeah. it's those it's kind of barriers um, that we see also all, all over the place, which, mm-hmm. are, which are hugely problematic. But I think on, on that fascinating note, uh, I just want to thank you both, uh, Gonzalo and Axel, for joining the AA podcast. It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion on, on a wide range of issues. Um, if you are enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider. And if you'd like to learn more about the IA's work, just visit ia.org.uk.